0: Alright, well hopefully you're at John chapter 4. If not, please make your way there. And we continue on with Jesus in Samaria. As Jesus decided to make his way from the southern region of Israel to the northern region, from Judea to Galilee, in John chapter 4 verse 1, it states very clearly that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. John 4, 4, I meant to say. He had appointment there that he needed to keep with a very unique individual. And by noontime, he arrived in Samaria at Jacob's well. There by himself, as the disciples went into the city to find food for them, a woman alone comes to the well And verses 1 through 26, a conversation starts between this woman and Jesus Christ. And we find that this woman was uh, isolated by her city. She was exiled by her city and therefore requiring her to go at the heat of the day to draw water because she wasn't welcome or accepted by the others of the city for her questionable reputation and for her immoral character. But yet this day, A day that would change her life forever. One kept his appointment with her there at the well and began to discuss the things that kept her from the life that God wanted her to have. And as she discovers in verse 26 that she is speaking to none other than Christ, the Messiah himself, at that point of revelation, we pick up the story this morning. We pick up this historical account. At the moment that Jesus reveals himself to her in verse 26, in verse 27 we discover that at that exact moment, the disciples return from the city. And they return at just the moment to hear what Christ has to say about himself. Sharing with that woman his true identity that He is the Messiah that has been so anticipated. And we will begin there this morning. The title of today's message is Get to Work. Get to Work. How many of you remember the first job that you ever held right out of high school? you remember what that was? Yeah, I... I did, too. I remember the first job that I held right after high school. My dad did not believe in the sitting-around summer vacation for his children. It was, if you're home and you're not at school, you got to work. So right away, my dad required me to get a job, which was great. I didn't mind that. I I worked every summer while I was in high school. But I went to work for a window and door company, a a very well-known one, Pella Window and Doors. And it was physical labor. It was difficult labor. It was a union shop. And the individual that was my boss, all he ever said to myself and the others that were hired at the exact same time, we were in a team together, was, Get to work. When I came in in the morning and I would say, Good morning, how are you? Get to work. When I asked him at the end of the day, How was your day? Get to work. That's all he ever said to me, get to work. Finally, I just used to walk by him and say, I'm getting to work. I never truly understood what he meant by those words. I always felt that I was slacking or doing something incorrect, but it wasn't until I, years later when I left that company and became director of operations for another company in the area, and I was responsible for a labor force, and I was responsible for a group of people, and I had 18 employees reporting to me through three different departments. I started to notice that when people walked by me, guess what I would begin to say to them? Get to work. In fact, I still catch myself doing it here at this church. People will come in on Sunday morning and say, Pastor Eric Howard, get to work. Get to work. Even when they're working, I just tell them, get to work. See, as I was a, just a laborer, I didn't understand all that was going on at the moment. I didn't really know what the deadlines were, what the commitments that were made. I didn't understand uh, the scheduling of work and what had to be accomplished within those eight hours of that day. It wasn't until I was a manager, a director myself, that I understood the big picture. No longer did I look at the individual jobs in a microcosm, meaning All I'm responsible for is what is in front of me. Now I saw the big picture. Now I saw the commitments. I knew where we needed to be. I knew what commitments had been made by the sales team. And I had to fulfill those things. I had a higher perspective than before. And I knew that the best thing that I could do at that time to accomplish those goals because I was so task-oriented was to keep people on task by simply saying to them, get to work. That's what we're going to discover in our text today. We're going to discover that the disciples had one perspective. Jesus had a complete different perspective. And it was time to get to work, but the disciples did not know that that was the opportunity that was before them. They didn't realize the big picture. They didn't see what was happening. They didn't realize now that they were given a task to accomplish and complete. It was time for them to get to work, and they almost missed an opportunity that Christ needed to instruct them in. He needed to show them that now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. And the opportunity that they simply glanced by or walked by or missed completely was fulfilled through a simple woman who one day came out to draw water. Her life was changed, and she went back into the same city in which she came out from. But this time, everything in her life was different. Her perspective was different. Her attitude was different. And as the disciples came and returned, she departed. And we find in verses 27 through 30 a transition. But let's read our entire text this morning, and then we'll unpack it section by section. In verse 27, at this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, come and see a man who told me all things that I have ever did." Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat which you do not know. And therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. When I sent you to reap that which you have not labored, others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all things I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because... What you have said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the savior of the world. Many of you know the Samaritans were a hated people group by the Jews. They were Jews and Gentile mixed culture. They had intermarried with Gentile nations, specifically the nation of Assyria, the archenemy of the Jewish people. And the Samaritans were avoided and shunned by Jews at every turn. The Samaritans hated the Jews for their arrogance and pompous attitude, and the Jews hated the Samaritans because they felt that they were simply a second-class race and should be avoided at all cost. And yet Jesus made his way specifically through Samaria to make his way from Judea to Galilee because he needed to see and meet someone and set an appointment with them. And as he spoke to this woman, and the woman comes to the reality of who he is, and this, she then returns to her city as the disciples return to Jesus. And at that moment, the disciples hear him proclaim that he is Messiah, verse 26. Now in verses 27, as she is departing, they are returning. We are, read in the Greek at this point this phrase. And at this point, his disciples came. It's very specific. It means that the timing of the revelation of who Jesus Christ was was perfectly placed in the hearing of the disciples and in the hearing of the woman. They saw him talking with her, which no rabbi of Judaism would ever consider doing. And they questioned within themselves, John obviously being one of them, what do you seek from her? Or... Why are you talking with her? One scholar even wrote this, that Jewish rabbis were not permitted to speak to women in the streets and considered any conversation with women to be a hindrance to the study of the Torah. The reluctance of the disciples to ask the questions show how embarrassed they were over Jesus' action. They couldn't comprehend what was happening before them. And so they pondered within themselves... They inquired within themselves, but they did not ask the question. In verse 28, we find that the woman leaves the water pot that she carried out to the well to fill and to return with. She leaves the water pot and then returns into the city. Why did John include that in our narrative? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire to give us that portion of information? Well, there are two thoughts concerning this action number one is that her mission in life had now completely changed it shows a new purpose in her life that was now the priority it wasn't simply taking and drawing the water her whole life had been radically altered by her encounter with christ and now she couldn't do anything but to share it with others now there's a second reason That I believe John included this. And it's found in the Greek word that we see represented by the word she left her water pot. The word left there in the Greek is the exact same Greek word that John uses in his first epistle for the word forgive. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word "forgive" in 1 John one nine is the same Greek word for the word "left" here with the water pot, and some scholars believe that that indicates that a forgiveness had been had taken place within her life. She left her water pot. She left her old life and returned into the city. And once she returns to the city, we've discovered that she immediately goes to the men of the city because the women and the men had very little contact and the, the women could not have responded to the invitation, only the men could. So she went to the men and she poses the proposition in a very unique and strategic way. She states here, Come and see a man who told me all things, verse 29, that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? A more literal translation is this. This couldn't be Messiah, could it? It's called an enigmatic statement. It means it's to draw curiosity out of those who are hearing her and being inquired of. It was to spark their curiosity enough to bring them to the place that they would be motivated to go and find and discover who this was and whom she spoke with. If she would have just come out and said, this is the Christ, most likely in that culture she would have been uh, just absolutely ignored. But yet she posed it in a way that drew their curiosity, that allowed them to follow her back to find out for themselves who this actually was. A.W. Tozer said this, he said, The impulse to share, to impart, normally accompanies any true encounter with God and spiritual things. The woman at the well, after her soul-inspiring meeting with Jesus, left her water pots, hurried into the city, and tried to persuade her friends to come out and meet him. She needed to share this good news with those that she knew. And in verse 30, they went out of the city and came to him. Now in verse 31, Jesus begins to teach his disciples and to fill in the blanks to allow them to see what they are missing. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Again, the phrasing is very interesting. Jesus again sparks their curiosity with another enigmatic statement to help them inquire further to draw out of them an inquisitive response and that's exactly what happens what food did you bring him any food i didn't bring him any food did she bring him some food this woman what kind of food did she bring him who brought them food who brought him food And they begin to question amongst themselves, again, completely looking at everything from a natural perspective. We would consider this a pragmatic statement. Jesus wants them to go deeper, but they are only looking for the immediate felt need. What's happening before us? Who possibly could have brought him anything to eat? In verse 33. Jesus sees them inquiring amongst themselves and pondering over what he had just said. And in verse 34, he plainly says, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. This is the crux of the teaching to the disciples. And there are two things that he desires the disciples to know. Number one, that there is a will that he is following and that will is mandated by the one who sent him. That is referring to God the Father. I am under my Father's will. I am fulfilling a task that I have been sent to fulfill, and I have purpose to finish His, His Father's, work. Point number two. To do His will and to finish His work. Two points to the teaching. To do His will. We discuss the will of God quite a bit. What does that actually mean, though? The will actually means what one wishes to bring about by the activities of others to whom one has assigned a task. Meaning God is looking to continue what he had started through the ministry of Jesus Christ through his church. As a whole, we have a general, broad perspective of God's will. But then there are also a more specific assigned task for each and every one of us. That would be God's specific will for each and every one of us. So God's will. The book of Acts ends in a very interesting way in chapter 28. It doesn't end. My daughter, if that was made a movie, would absolutely hate the ending of that movie because it's so open-ended. And if you read acts chapter 28 and you come to the end you're like what 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 happened next well it's still being written every single day through the activity of the church until christ returns for his church the acts of the church are continuing today we are still fulfilling the ministry in which christ had started that's why we are his body he is our head we are fulfilling the purposes of christ in and through our lives But God has a will for each and every one of us. Paul outlined that will for us in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Secondly, he stated in 1 Corinthians 12.27, Now you are the body of Christ and members individually, or it could be rendered individually membered with individual tasks. So we are all now under the will of God. And we're going to talk more about that in a moment. But not only to be under the will of God and subjected to the will of God, but we must look to seek to finish the plan and purpose that God has for us. Here it is implied that we know that God has a will for us, and then we are to make it the prioritized plan of our personal lives. As Jesus said in John 6:38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. And in John 17:4, I have glorified you on the earth I have finished the work which you have given me to do. That mandate should be our mandate. The moment we became Christians, we became bondservants of Jesus Christ. No longer living our life for our own purposes, but living to glorify our Lord and Savior Jesus and our Heavenly Father. And as a result of that desire to glorify Him, we then subject ourselves to the will that He has for us. Now this has stumbled many Christians, and I believe many Christians make this concept more complex and confusing than it actually needs to be. I believe that the Bible throughout the New Testament shows us that God has a general will for all who are in the body of Christ and specific will for each individual within the body of Christ. Let me explain. We have verses in the Bible in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5, for example, that read this. For this is the will of God, Your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That's the general will for all Christians. Sanctification of ourselves. Meaning that we are coming out of the world and allowing God to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Because he loves us too much to leave us the way he found us and he desires more for us. And therefore we should look to abandon those things that we occupied prior to our our conversion in Christ and look to live in the power of the new life. That's a mandate for all Christians. We also find that this in 1 Peter 2.15, this is the will of God. That by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. That by doing good, we should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. That's for all Christians. I would go one step further to say God's will is to avoid anything that He would consider sin. That's God's will for our life. And also to do all those things that He asks us to do. That's God's will. But I also believe that not only do we have a general will but a specific will for each and every one of us that specific will can can be uh, placed within where we act within the body of Christ, if we are a foot, a hand, a toe, an eyeball, an ear, or so forth, and even those places that we go. Paul said in romans one nine and ten he says for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests if, by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. He desired that he be allowed by God, according to God's will, that he goes to those in Rome. In fact, if there's any doubt of that, he ends the letter with a phrase very similar in Romans 15.32. That I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together by you. There is a specific will. Paul in his calling as an apostle often stated and introduced himself as Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So there's a general and a specific will that God has for your life. Now, where Christians get tripped up, and where they make it more complex and more difficult than it needs to be, is how do we learn or discover the specific will of God for our personal lives? First of all, I think we begin by understanding that there is one there for you. That God has you uh, in mind for a specific place within the body of Christ, to serve within the body of Christ in that capacity. For example, God wanted me to be a pastor-teacher. That's what I do. That's where he has me in the body. That was the will for my life. It may not be the will for your life. God may not be calling you to that ministry, but to some other ministry, some other service. But how do you discover that specific will? That's where things get confusing for many Christians today. Here's what I believe we should not do to discover God's will for our life. Some churches have implemented what I call spiritual aptitude tests. Have you heard about these? Where you come into a church and they give you a test, and those tests help you to discover where you should be and serve within the body of Christ. Often those tests are administered shortly after the conversion of that individual. So they haven't had any time to wait on God. They haven't had any time for God to sanctify them, drawing them closer to Him. They haven't had any time to discover what God may have for them personally. They are now simply going on the mandate of that test. Unfortunately, those aptitude tests don't draw out spiritual gifting as much as they draw out physical or fleshly ability. So they draw out the understanding of the individual. This is what I must be called to based on this aptitude test. And all it's doing is drawing upon their physical ability, fleshly ability. Well, I tell you this, that we have many examples in the Bible of God using people in a very specific manner, apart from their abilities, outside the boundaries of their abilities. Why? To allow them to know that it is not them, but it is God who works in and through them, and all the glory goes to Him. We talk a lot about this next subject today. Well, this is the way God wired me. How many times have you heard Christians say, well, this is the way God wired me. When I read the New Testament, God's in the rewiring business, isn't He? Doesn't He change our thinking? Doesn't he change our mind? Yes, absolutely. So if we're simply dictating God's specific will for our life simply on the basis of what, how God wired us, we are really leaving out a lot out of the equation because God may want to change you completely. I cannot tell you that when I initially was called to be the pastor, that's what I was wired for. No, God is still wiring me up every single day to fulfill this ministry. Lastly, many people just say God's will must be on those things that I am comfortable doing, that I'm simply comfortable doing. Well, often God takes people outside their comfort zones to fulfill His purposes. And He does so again so He receives the glory that He gets the credit for what is happening and that you personally walk away from what God has just done knowing in your heart that it's not you. Now, this should encourage you. Not discourage you. Some of you may be saying, wow, that's frightening, that's discouraging. No, it shouldn't be. Because what I'm telling you is that if God calls you to do something, He will equip you to do it. He will give you the power, the ability to do what He has called you to do for His glory. So how do you discover God's specific will for your life? And that's a question that we should all ask ourselves. And I believe it is outlined for us in Romans 12, 1 and 2. If you'd like to turn there, please do. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul concluding his incredible letter to the Romans, filled with doctrine from the time it starts to the time it ends. As he's weaving his way into the conclusion in chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16... He begins by saying, I beseech you, therefore, my brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So what does that mean? Well, let's unpack it a little bit. Number one. We are to present ourselves a living sacrifice, and that entails two things. Number one, we shall be holy. And number two, acceptable to God or pleasing to God. What does that mean? To be holy means to be set apart. It means that we are abstaining from those things that God has called sin. And we have forsaken those things. And we have allowed God to set us apart through His ability, power, strength, and so forth, To be used by him for his glory. But not only are we setting ourselves apart and avoiding those things that he has asked us to avoid, but we are acceptable to God, pleasing to God. What does that mean? It means that in the vacuum or in the abandonment of those things that we no longer desire to do, we now begin to do the things that God would have us to do. In the Bible, there are admonishments to cease things and there are admonishments to do things. Some of them are contained in the same verse. Let me explain. Do not be drunk with wine. There is what you shouldn't do. But be filled with the Spirit. That's what you should do. So being holy would be not to be drunk with wine. To be pleasing to God would be filled with the Spirit. Do you get the concept? As a living sacrifice, that's the mandate. Avoid those things that are sin, turning away from them, repenting of those things, but in the wake of those things, doing those things that are pleasing to God. The second point he brings out is to not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And how does that take place? By the renewing of our mind. As we grow in our Christian life, we should begin to seek the heart of God, the mind of God, And we should be able to allow Him to work in us and through us for His purpose. Allowing God to change our mind. Viewing the world as God views the world. Viewing the things of the world as God views the things of the world. Viewing man as God sees man. Viewing creation as God sees creation and so forth. A renewing. Not being conformed in what the world thinks and the ideologies that it carries, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind, allowing God to give us His wisdom through the Word of God. So this is what I'm telling you. I am asking you to position yourself before God as a living sacrifice, avoiding those things, running from those things that God considers sin, doing those things that God would have you to do because you love Him, And allow God to renew your mind through the word of God and through prayer. Therefore, position yourself, not that you have to go out and find God's will, but then God's will will find you. That's what I'm telling you to do when it comes to the specifics of God's will. Position yourself in a place where God can move you and take you along and therefore fulfilling his specific will for you. Many Christians feel that discovering God's will is almost like an acrobatic event such as Indiana Jones going through those caves and as Indiana Jones won going through those caves, Raiders of the Lost Ark and the big stone comes rolling after him after he discovers the the, uh, idol and so forth people feel that that's what they need to go through to get God's will God wants to reveal to you what he has for you position yourself to be used by God for his glory. Seeking God. Now, I want to emphasize this last point immensely. Each and every person that I've ever read their life story, men and women who have been used by God in such a dynamic fashion, absolutely beyond physical capabilities of the individual, each of them had Two very significant, consistent points of character. And you know what those points of character were? Each one of them loved to pray. Loved to pray. And each one of them loved God's Word. And they spent hours in prayer and God's Word. And as God moved them along, fulfilling the plan and purpose that He had for them, they continued to seek Him through prayer and His Word daily. And I will tell you, that's the way God re- reveals the specifics to you, through prayer, His Word, through fellowship, through the counsel of others, and so forth. But position yourself in such a way. I love the way the ESV renders Romans twelve two. It reads this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So if you desire to discern God's will, position yourself as a living sacrifice before him. One scholar wrote this, he stated this, As a Christian is is transformed in his mind and made more like Christ, he becomes to approve and desire God's will, not his own will for his life then he discovers that God's will is what is good for him and it is that that pleases God and is complete in every way it is all he needs but only by being renewed spiritually can a believer ascertain to do and to enjoy God's will A.W. Tozer said this we urgently need a new kind of reformation throughout the Christian churches a reformation that will cause us not only to accept the will of God but to actively seek it and and adore it. We today in America have made Christianity a self centered, man centered faith. It is not about us, it is all about Him and fulfilling the plan and purpose that He has for our life. He then goes on in verses 35 to tell us that now is the time. Procrastination no longer should take place. Verse 35, let's read it together. Do not say that there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. He is using a proverb that was used in that culture. It was a four-month period of time between the time seeds were sown and by the time seeds were harvested. And it was a normal thinking. It's four months. It takes time. And we need to wait for that time. Jesus saying, no, now is the time. Get past the procrastination and begin to get on task. John MacArthur states that Jewish historians believe that what was happening here at this moment was that as they were at the well and the individuals from Samaria were coming through the green fields that weren't yet ripe for harvest... The Samaritans were dressed in white robes in front of a green background. And he asked the disciples to look up and there they saw the Samaritans coming through this green field in white robes saying, look, the fields are already white for harvest. You just need to look and to notice that now is the time. I love what Dr. David Jeremiah says about procrastination. He says there are two major problems with procrastination. Number one, procrastination does not take into account the uncertainty of life. Now, Are you a procrastinator? The reason I ask this is because, you know, 84% of Americans consider themselves a procrastinator. You know, why do today what you can put off till tomorrow? I actually had someone give me a coffee cup with that one time. I was a little offended. Uh, But procrastination is a problem that we all face today. Now, here's the deal. The first problem with procrastination is this. We are assuming that tomorrow life circumstances are going to be the same as today. How many of you have put off things and now can't do what you desire to do because your life circumstances have changed completely. That's happened to many. The second problem with procrastination, it doesn't take into account the urgency of conviction. You know, conviction wants you to act at the moment. Procrastination wears that conviction down. It lessens the urgency of it, and we can do it some other time. It causes us not to move at the moment. In fact, one quote was this procrastination is the assassination of motivation. I truly believe that. Guys, now is the time as he is already beginning to condition and commission the disciples to show them that they now have to take the gospel into the world. Now is the time. And he also wanted them to know about those who sow and to reap. Verse 36. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you have labored not. Others have labored, and you have entered in to their labors. He wanted the disciples to know that what they were entering into had already started before they ever began not only did God predestine and elect those individuals for salvation from the foundations of the world, but before the disciples ever went to Samaria, we know the prophets did. We know John the Baptist did. We know that Jesus, through the woman, did. And they were already just capitalizing on what had already started. They entered into work that had already begun. And we find that to be true today. How many of us have entered into the evangelistic process only to discover that someone has shared with that individual prior someone has planted someone has watered and now God gives the increase and maybe you're the one that he will use to reap what has already been sown I remember distinctly being at the streets of Woodfield some time ago, street evangelizing. And a young woman was there with other uh, teenagers, and we were talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And many of them decided to receive Jesus Christ and repent of their sins right there. So as I was leading them through the gospel, telling them what they needed to know to be saved, after praying with them, One of the young girls came up to me and said two weeks earlier, her grandmother on her deathbed, holding her hand, shared the gospel with her also, desired her to be a Christian, and she was under such a weight of sin and condemnation because she needed to accept Christ. She knew she needed to. She needed to get right with God, and she didn't do it there. And before she could, her grandmother died. I realized at that moment that I had entered into a labor that had already begun. Her grandmother had already planted seeds or maybe watered seeds in that young girl's life. And I was just now the one God was using to reap the harvest. Remember, when you share the gospel of Jesus Christ, remember that you are sharing with people that probably God has prepared already. If not, maybe you are the first one in the progression. Maybe you're planting the seeds for the first time or watering them and so forth, trusting God to give the increase and maybe being one who reaps or uh, enters into the labor of others. Just last week, Greg Laurie did Harvest America. 272,000 people heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and nearly 27,000 professed Christ after the invitation. Now, if they're saved or not, time will tell. But I can imagine that Greg would say that he only entered into labor that already began. That God from the beginning of the world, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the prophets, through John the Baptist, through Jesus and the apostles, and now we are just entering into that labor. He wanted the disciples to know that they were more than just the 12 that were there. And in verse 39 through 42, we come to the conclusion The testimony, the fruit of it all, and many of the Samaritans of the city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed with them two days, and many more believed because of his own word. Then he said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you had said, For we ourselves have heard him, and we know this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Notice the progression. In verse 28, the word used concerning Jesus' identity is could. Could this be the Messiah? In verse 39, it's we believe. We believe. And in verse 42, a solidified we know is now given. John's purpose for writing his gospel was that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He brings you through this entire narrative to allow you to see that others discovered that reality during the time of Christ. The disciples, the woman at the well, these individuals from the Samaritan city who now know that Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he was. Notice that this woman, Went back. She was of ill reputation. She wasn't even welcomed amongst the other women of the city that she belonged to. She had a draw at the noon hour, the hottest part of the day. And yet, through her simple testimony, she drew individuals to come out and to meet Christ for themselves. Many Christians are reluctant to share the gospel of Jesus Christ or get into conversations about God because they feel that they are ill equipped to do so. Now, that may be true, and that may be a reality that would require you to study, to show yourself approved, to be able to give an answer in season and out of season for the hope that is in you. But I don't want you to think that that's the only thing that may be holding you back. Some individuals think that, I really don't have anything to share. I, I don't have anything to give. I can give them the gospel, but you know, I want to be able to uh, give them the gospel and to show them what it can do and so forth. And they don't realize that one of the most valuable tools in their arsenal for sharing the gospel is their personal testimony. Telling people, individuals how you have come to jesus christ and what god has done in your life is still one of the most effective ways in sharing the gospel of jesus christ and i love when i go out to street evangelize or if i just simply go and get a cup of coffee and try to stir up a conversation i love to engage people by simply allowing them to tell me their story people love to talk about themselves So I will patiently listen to their entire life stories. Sometimes it's more information than I wanted. But it gives me the open door to share mine. And as I get into it, obviously I focus on Jesus, not me. And what Jesus has done in my life. And how I have come to him for salvation and forgiveness of my sins. Your testimony is incredibly valuable for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is capable of saving people. That's what saves them. Your testimony just gives it a personal touch, allows them to see that it's real in your personal life. I want to leave you with five things. Today, the ministry of To Reach the World continues through you and I. Number one, it is God's will for us. God has a will for us, and part of that will is that we would share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would be available to share with anyone at any moment the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's God's will. We should make it our mandate to seek and to finish the work that is before us, taking advantage of those opportunities and not running away from them. Number three, now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is promised to no one. Procrastination should cease. Number four, we have entered into a work that has already begun. We are just one in the process. And number five, we will all rejoice together. The Bible says that all the angels of heaven rejoice over one sinner that comes to repentance. And though I may be entering into the labor of someone else, and though I may be just sowing, and though I may be watering, and not seeing the fruit firsthand for myself when that individual does come to christ i will rejoice in heaven with that individual who led them to christ because i was simply part of the process i have entered in to a work that has already begun and we shall all rejoice together as jesus said in verse 34 and i direct you to this in closing my food that which sustains me That which motivates me, that which moves me, is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. It's time to get to work.